Well, good morning. Thank you guys for having me back at Antioch. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be with you guys. Um, we are going to be in John chapter 8. You probably picked that up from the liturgy this morning, but we're going to be in John chapter 8. And we're looking at Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world. I guess the kids can leave. So I can read the room. Either children really hate my message already. Or it's time for the children to go somewhere else. So we are going to be in John chapter 8, and we are looking at one of the seven I am statements uh, in the scripture that, that Jesus articulates, bringing really clarity and definition to his deity. Now, this is really fascinating, um, and it's puzzled me for a long time. If you read early in some of the gospels, uh, there will be people, especially the marginalized and the broken and the poor, who will make statements like you are the son of God or you are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> he's like, my time has not yet come. Yet when you get later in his life, he's making these bold declarations, um, these I am statements. But all of these, these I am statements, these seven I am statements are really tying back and flowing from this one story that we find in Exodus chapter three. And I know you guys have been in Exodus for a while. I just want to read this, this uh, part of the burning bush. When Moses has a lot of self-doubt, when he wonders if he is the right person, you can think about his story and his experience. Um, he's out in the wilderness as a, as a shepherd. Here's what he says. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. What God is, is declaring here, he's declaring, he's bringing definition to himself. I, the I am, right? The, the clarity of, of his deity, he is using his servant to bring rescue to his people. And Jesus here is clearly connecting himself to this key moment in the history of the Israelites. And if you would have been a Jew who would have been familiar with the Torah, it would have been a shaking experience. So let's stand uh, for the reading of God's word. It's a really long passage we're going to read, one verse. So you got to bear with me. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen. You may be seated. So I had two choices this morning about a passage to read. We could either read 59 verses together, or we could read one verse. So we're going to read one verse, and then I'm going to try to tell the whole story of all 59. Because actually, it's in the context of three chapters that we need to understand this significant moment. Um, but did you know that 140 years ago, around this same time, Louisville was the talk of the world. Our little city was the talk of the world. Just a few miles from here in old Louisville, there was a huge exposition center that displayed some of the greatest inventions of the day. Sitting where Central Park is now and St. James Court sat the Southern Exhibition. So there were some business guys who really wanted to show the world that Louisville wasn't a sleepy little town, that it was at the forefront of innovation and an invention in this industrial revolution. It was significant. So they created this huge exposition. It was supposed to go for 100 days, and they showed some of the fanciest machines. They had a working farm. 
uh, a five-acre working farm. They did theater performances every day. They even had weekly fireworks. And it only went for 100 days, but it went for 100 days for five years running. It's a significant uh, thing that happened in the history of Louisville. But the, at the center of everything was this huge wooden building. In fact, it's still the largest all-wooden building ever built in America. So it gets, sits where Central Park and, and St. James Court are. And inside was kind of the focus of the whole exposition. This building stretched over 13 acres. And the main attraction was the fact that the exposition remained open at night. So you could go in the evening and there were still things happening. Now, remember the time. Um, it was just a few years before this, Thomas Edison had invented the first light bulb that would actually function well. And you could find them around in small places, but for the most part, indoor lighting was not a thing. So they put 4,600 light bulbs in display in this building. It was the largest indoor lighting display in the world. In fact, there was more light emitting from this one building than the whole city of New York. So it was significant. Before this, Louisville was a dark place, but with Edison's invention, the city was as bright as any place in the world. And that's the tension that we're feeling in this passage. And in our own lives, just like this great building lit up our city, we are called to experience the light of Jesus and to shine it forth. But it's hard. It's hard. Someone stands up here, especially Antioch, who is known for being a sending church, both sending around the world, but sending across the city. If we're honest with ourselves, the tension of living the Christian life and being a light to the world is a difficult one. Because we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a real world where every day, every moment, we experience sin and temptation and the push of life. We live in dark, dark world. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to remember the light. Do you feel it? How can we know the light and be the light when darkness crutches in on our lives? Crushes in. And I pray this morning as we sit in this short little verse that you will be encouraged that this is not just a declaration of who Jesus is. It's an invitation to be with Jesus and to be like him to those around us. But before we dive in, I think it's important to understand the context of what's happening here in Jesus' teaching. Over the last few chapters, John 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is really taking a turn in his ministry. You know, we often think about Jesus' teaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's teaching and he's feeding the, the, the people and Uh, There's just all of these people coming toward him. But there's a moment in Jesus' ministry where he starts to make that message of invitation really difficult. He uses parables. He says really hard things. Um, It's like he's amping up his ministry. So like, I don't know about you, but when I get in my car and I'm all alone, I turn up the volume really loud. Right? Josh Thomas is like, yeah. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. He is amping up. He's turning up the volume in his ministry. He says things like in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, if you're sitting under Jesus' teaching and you're like, yeah, he gives us good food. He heals the sick. He talks about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he wants us to eat his flesh and bones and drink his blood. Okay, this is getting real weird, Right? Jesus doesn't do that by accident. There's intentionality about what he's doing. Jesus is intentionally making his message hard and his listeners don't like it. They don't like it. That big crowd, the people who are following him from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, those crowds start to diminish. They start to get smaller. 
As you can imagine, those who followed Jesus were both puzzled, and the scripture says in these chapters that people began to turn away from him and turn against him. Not just run away, but become his enemy. And in the middle of this intense exchange with the crowd that Jesus declares himself, here's what he says. He says that he is the light of the world. He is the God that shines light into the darkness. This morning, we're going to do something a little different. And uh, we already talked about it a little bit in our liturgy this morning, but there's a, a, a tradition in church history of these catechisms. And I would encourage you, if you're a parent or maybe you're just a normal everyday person, the catechism is a beautiful thing. Here's how it works. You ask yourself a question, you memorize that question, and then you provide an answer. You memorize this like back and forth. You know, who is God? And here's an answer. Who am I? What is sin? And you're learning rich theology in these simple forms. Teach it to your children, build it into your quiet time. But I want to try something a little different. I actually want to do our sermon in the form of a catechism. We're going to ask three questions, and then I'm going to provide an answer to those three questions. Here they are. Who is Jesus? Who are we? And what has Jesus called us to do? First of all, who is Jesus? He is the light of the world. Jesus is not mincing words here in this passage. He is making it clear to everyone listening that he is the I am of Exodus 3. He is more than a teacher. He is more than a provider of food. He is more than a friend. He is the creator and sustainer of life. He comes from the Father and he returns to the Father. He is of the same essence as the Father. Jesus is the pre-existent son, is including himself in the divine identity of Yahweh. This is essential as a believer. Jesus is God. He is a part of the Trinity, and he declares himself so. This is a huge deal for Jesus to declare himself deity. And as you can tell, it shakes up his listeners. So if I would encourage you this week, read um, verses 1 all the way through 59, and it's like a movie. This tension is building where they're like, hey, Jesus, you're saying some weird things. Tell us more. And then Jesus just turns up the volume, and by the end, it's just like pandemonium, right? There's like cars burning in the back, loud noises, explosions. Um, it's just this really intense passage. And some of his, uh, his listeners, they start uh, an intense line of questioning when he turns up the volume. They even go so far as to throw racial slurs at him. Oh, you're a Samaritan, right? And, and in the same passage, in the same section, they call him demon-possessed. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond to these accusations? Here's what he says. He turns up the volume again. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now remember, context. He says, I am the light of the world. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Are you saying like, is that just a simple statement? Are you, are you identifying yourself with Yahweh in Exodus 3? And then he has this really intense experience with them. And then he gets to the end of, the, of, that, pa- of that passage at the end of chapter 8. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Mic drop. Walk off stage. And you can imagine the scene at the moment. Let's stop and imagine that for a second. All these people who are listening to him, some genuine followers, but most have already turned against him. They hear his declaration of divinity, and we can imagine they get silent. Wait, I'm sorry, what did you just say? They look at each other, the eyes wide, shock, disbelief. Did he just say what I think he said? Did he just call himself God? Okay, that's enough. 
This dude has crossed the line. Let's end it now. And so that's what they try to do. They literally try to kill him on the spot. Look back in verse 15, or look, look forward to verse 59, chapter 8. So they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden. I love this passage. Not that Jesus is about to get stoned. That's not what I love. But they get so intense, so on fire that they're, they pick up stones. That's what you do when someone blasphemes. They, they go to stone him, and then he just disappears. Now, he's not hiding behind a tree. He's not hiding behind another person. This is a miraculous event that happens because Jesus' time had not yet come. So Jesus was hidden from them. This is at the, the most intense moment pre-crucifixion of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' claim of being God throws the crowd for a loop. It throws them into pandemonium. And so it should. These Jews who are seeking to follow God, they're seeking to understand, they're following this new teacher. They are overwhelmed with anger and confusion at the words of a man declaring himself to be God. And they should be thrown off by that unless what he says is true. If it's true, and it is true, Jesus' divinity changes everything. It's significant. To be a follower of Jesus is to embrace, to claim, to hang on to the divinity of Jesus. Jesus both declares himself divine, and then he brings definition to his divinity, to who he is. He is the light that illuminates the world. So when he makes these I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the light of the world, he is bringing clarity to his Godhead, to, to his divinity. Now, it's important to know what's happening around this teaching, right? All scripture has context, but this is like a really important one. He's teaching, people are following him, and they're like, who is this dude? And they're starting to get angry. But where is this happening? This is all happening around a, a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we don't have time to go into a lot of this, but the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the greatest celebrations of the Jewish people. And at the center of the celebration was a symbol of light. It's a symbol of light because the, the Feast of Tabernacles is really looking forward to the coming Messiah. And they use light as imagery to, to show and to anticipate this coming Messiah. Uh, there was four huge lamps that would have been lit at the temple court and people would have celebrated under their light all night long. Men would have danced throughout the night. They would have held up their own torches, waving them as they danced. They sang songs and praises to God. The light from these celebrations would have been seen all over Jerusalem. And it's during this festival, the days of the festival, that Jesus says these things, that he says, I am the light of the world. They would have known what he's talking about. The light of the world, the light of the Feast of Tabernacles was pointing to the future Messiah. And it's during these days of celebration that Jesus says, I am that light. He is the very fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, light is a significant theme all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible. Think about creation. When God created light and it flooded into his new world, Genesis chapter 1. Or think about the Exodus, when God used a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There's, there's a light in the day and the night, and it guided his people all the way through the wilderness. It provided his presence and guidance to his people. Or think about David's declaration in the Psalms, Psalm 27. He, he declares God to be his light and his salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? And we could go on and on about all the passages that use light to point to who God is. So when Jesus declares himself to be light, 
It's a significant moment. The Old Testament is full of these references. Jesus is declaring that he is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. This building of intensity in his ministry. I am the light of the world. I am the fulfillment of God's promises to you. But it's not just Jesus who's doing this. John does this in, his, in this book as well. He talks about Jesus being the light of the world. We look at chapter 1, the opening of the book. John writes, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So this idea of light is, is significant all throughout the book of John. He opens it with this illustration, this, uh, this picture of who God is as light. We see it through Jesus' ministry. And even you get to some of his later letters, right? The letters of John, he pulls back in this imagery of light. And what John is doing, what other writers are doing, is they're saying, uh, they're providing this neon sign, right? You guys seen big neon signs in front of buildings? And there's a giant arrow pointing to Jesus saying, he is here. He is here. All the promises of all the things you've been waiting for for thousands of years is found in Jesus. Stop looking, stop searching, stop grasping. Jesus is here. Friends, do you hear that? All the things that you long for, all the things that you grasp at, all the things that are burning inside of you are found in Jesus. He is the hope of the world. He is the hope of your soul. But it begs the question, if Jesus is light, what does light do? Light illuminates the darkness. It illuminates the darkness. A few weeks ago, I was uh, prepping for the sermon. I was sitting in a coffee shop in Louisville, one of the hundreds of coffee shops in our city. And I had gotten a cup of coffee and I was sitting down and I had a big, thick uh, commentary of John, right? I was one of those people that you see in a coffee shop. Um. So I sat down, there's a guy sitting across from me and he started chatting with me and he asked me what I was reading. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes these conversations make me nervous because they can go like sideways real fast. It's like, do you have a little name tag? Like Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what's happening? Um, so we started chatting and he, I said, I'm, re- I'm reading this book on uh, the book of John. And his eyes got real big. I was like, oh no, what's his whole facial expression changed. And he slowly reached into his bag and he pulled out a Bible and he leaned in. He's like, I'm a Christian too. (laughs) Now I didn't didn't want to tell him as I look around the room, there were like half the people were doing a Bible study. Half the people were studying for, for seminary, but he, he was talking to me like he and I were the only Christians in the world. And I knew this dude was different. Something was different about this guy. And sure enough, over the next 30 minutes, I got to know Jay and learn that he was a new believer. He had told me how he came to faith through a witness of a coworker. He called his friend and said, hey, I'm single. I'm living this like kind of like wild life looking for happiness. But when I think about uh, getting married and having kids down the road, I want to be a good dad. I didn't have a good dad. I want to be a good, I want to experience that. How can I be a good dad? And his coworker's like, well, I can tell you how to be a good dad. So he transitions into the gospel. And on that phone call, Jay came to faith. 
He told me that now that he follows Jesus, he cries every day as he reads the Bible and learns more and more about his Savior. He said that before Jesus, he had the money, he had the girls, he had the success in business, everything he thought would bring him happiness. But in reality, they were empty and pitiful, pitiful. He told me word for word, why do I need drugs or alcohol or the things of this world when I have Jesus? And he wasn't just saying that as a platitude. He like literally meant it. He came alive. It's funny. I preached this sermon at my home church here in Louisville. um, And after the service, I had two uh, young guys in their early to mid twenties come up to me and he's like, Hey, that Jay you're talking about, is he this guy? Cause Jay's not his real name. And, and it was the same guy. They're like, he did the same thing to me in a coffee shop. And I had walked away from Jesus. And now we meet and we study the Bible. And, and Jay's only been a believer for 10 months. And he warmed my heart and he brought wayward believers back to faith. It's this crazy thing. And you see, Jay had been walking in darkness and then the light of the gospel flooded in, flooded in. It was like he was sitting in the darkest room in the deepest pit when someone flipped the lights on. Whoa. And that's, that's the way he lived life. He was like, I can see Jesus and I can see myself, but more than anything, more than anything else, I can see the cross. And he was evaluating all of life and his decisions and his friendships in reflection of the cross. The gospel illuminated his sin and his weak attempt at happiness and shined an even brighter light on Jesus. And this is what happens to us as well, friends. When we experience salvation in Jesus, when the gospel becomes real and is planted deep within our life, it changes us. It can't help. You can't help be changed by the gospel when it plants deep in your life. But it begs the question, if Jesus is the light, who are we? What does that mean for us? Who are we? We are light bearers. We receive the light and we bear it out to others. And that's exactly what's happening in my, my friend Jay's life. He was a, a non-believer 10 months ago, and now he's following Jesus. He's bouncing from coffee shop to coffee shop, starting these conversations with random people. And as I looked into this guy's eyes, I was like, man, I, I, I want that, right? I've been a believer for 32 years, but I've lost something in my life. And it was this pure, unfiltered light. And the same is true for us. Being a Christian is light and life. But hear me, following Jesus is more than a culture. Following Jesus is more than a side hustle, more than a casual hobby. Following Jesus is a all or nothing endeavor. And if you're sitting here playing with the idol of Jesus, you either need to jump in or jump out, right? There is an invitation to follow Jesus. And like the followers and listeners of Jesus' message in John chapter eight, there's gonna come a point where Jesus turns up the volume in your life and you either come to him or you push away. And I don't say that to push you away if you're on the sidelines, but to invite you in to experience life, to step out of darkness. You're either following him in the light or you're not. Look back in verse 12, toward the end of verse 12. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts this. He was a a German theologian and pastor. He says this about following Jesus. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's intense, right? 
Bonhoeffer, who literally gave his life as a testimony to the gospel. And on an Easter Sunday in a concentration camp, they tapped him on a shoulder and said, follow me. And he was standing with other believers, right? Testifying to the gospel. And he walked toward his execution. To follow Jesus requires sacrifice. It's intense, right? What, what Bonhoeffer says, what, what John says, what Jesus says, but Jesus says it in other places. Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself to take up his cross and to follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is a beauty and a terror in following Jesus. But, but once you follow the light, once you step out of the darkness into the light, there's nothing better, nothing better. But along with receiving the light, right? Jesus is the light. We receive the light. It, it changes us from, from within. It pushes light from without. It also compels us to be light toward others, to move out toward others. You see, light can't help but bear witness to itself, right? You can't walk over, I don't know where the light switch is, but you can't walk over and turn on the light switch and it like stays over in this little corner of the room, right? Even if it's a tiny little candle, you're literally going to see it from everywhere because light does one thing, it illuminates the darkness. But it, it's not just like a candle, it's not just like a light bulb that Edison created. It's more like the moon, right? On a full moon, I take my, my kids will walk out and be like, dad, look at the moon. And it's this perfect illustration. Hey guys, that light is not the moon's light. The moon is simply shining forth what it's experiencing. It, it, it's experiencing the sun. What we see in the moon, it's shining forth the light of the sun. And we too are simply called to shine the light that indwells us. Like the moon shines the light of the sun. We are simply called to shine the light of Jesus. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, this is wild. Jesus in Matthew 5 is using the same language he's using for himself in John chapter 8, that we are the light of the world, that we are light bearers, we are mimicking, we are mirroring who Jesus is in shining light. But the distinction is that Jesus himself is the radiant one, and we are simply displaying the light that Jesus has given us. This should, this should be an encouragement, friends. This should be an encouragement of living on mission. Evangelism, living a missional lifestyle, opening your home to non-believers can be a terrifying thing. Maybe it's not for you, but... I've been in ministry a long time. It is for the vast majority of people. But I want to simplify. Don't overcomplicate living a life on mission. Because making God known, it's not our clever speech. It's not how well-spoken you are. It's not the fact that you know every answer to every question that every person asks of you. Being on mission for Jesus means shining light into the darkness. All Jesus is calling you to do is to shine his light to others. Our role in reaching people the gospel is to open our mouths and declare what God has done for us. My favorite passage in all the scripture is John chapter four, because it's just like so rich and thick with who Jesus is and, and who, who he reaches and his ministry style, all this stuff. So Jesus is like, 
walking through Samaria. He sits on this well. Jesus never does anything with that intentionality. This like rejected woman comes from a local village and he engages with the Samaritan woman and they have this conversation. She ends up coming to faith. She leaves her water jar. She runs to her village and the scripture says, come meet a man who knows everything about me. And the village came and they believed. They believed because of that woman's testimony. Now that, that lady had been a believer for like 60 seconds, five minutes. She had not been to seminary. She had no theological training. What did she do? She simply went to people who had no knowledge of Jesus and said, hey, come meet this guy. Guys, that's all we have to do. That's all we have to do. Open your mouth, situate your life, invite people to experience what you have experienced. Will you know all the answers? No. Will you make mistakes? Absolutely. But is it on you to save people? Absolutely not. God can use your broken and frail words and ways in order to lead people to Jesus. That's how the Spirit works. So open up your busy lives. Share meals with the lost. Extend a hand of service to your neighbor. And use your words to point people to Jesus. That, if you're doing those things, if you're, if you're doing whatever you can to, to open up your busy life, live life with unbelievers, and declare what you know about Jesus and invite people to experience him, that's what it means to be live on mission. Don't overcomplicate it. Just simply live a life that demonstrates and declares who Jesus is. When we do that, we are living a, a life of a light bearer. So if Jesus is the light of the world and we've been made his light bearers, what has Jesus called us to do? So our third uh, point of the catechism. What has Jesus called us to do? We are called to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Remember the context of this passage. The crowd had turned against Jesus. They had gone from being fanboys to an angry mob. Often this is true. When you have a fanboy, they can turn real quickly. And this is what Jesus was experiencing. The rest of John 8, this whole uh, chapter, pushes in and Jesus uh, begins to... uh, engage with these hostile people, this back and forth dialogue. And what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting two ways of life. You see this theme in the scripture too. Think about um, Psalm chapter one, right? What does it mean to be blessed? This blessed life. There's the, the life of those who are rooted by a river and their, their fruit produces no matter what season. And then there's the wicked, they're like shaft. It's like when you, you throw up grain or rice and the, the, the husk, is blown away by the wind. That's a, an Old Testament uh, illustration to understand these two ways of life. Jesus gives multiple ways to understand these two ways of life throughout this passage. He says things like, um, he gives an example of life as a son and life as a slave. Eternal life and eternal death. Being a son of Abraham or being a son of the devil. Life in the light and life in the darkness. It's not just here, but we find this light and darkness pitted against each other all over scripture. First John chapter one, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus's son cleanses us from all sin. Light, dark, slave, son. There are these two ways of life. The broad gate, or the, the, the broad road and the narrow gate. There's this invitation to experience Jesus the way he was intended to be experienced, to, to walk with Jesus in the light. And Jesus is calling us in this passage to know him, to follow him, and to walk in his light. 
no matter how hard the message of the gospel is, and if you know the message of the gospel, it is a hard message to follow. Or no matter what life throws at you, and life will throw a lot, especially as a Christian. No matter what the evil one tempts us with, and he will tempt us with a lot, our only hope in this life is to walk in the light with Jesus. Hear me, friends. There is no other way. There is no other method. There is no other self-help. There is no other path that you can follow that will experience the light and life that is found in Jesus. Or as the Mandalorian says, this is the way. This is the way. But beware. You can't be a light bearer and walk in darkness. Light and darkness do not cohabitate. Did you know that? You can't be in the light and cuddle up to darkness. To follow the Savior is to turn from the dark, we call this repentance, and to walk in the light. Now, this does not mean that we never sin. We don't believe in some sort of perfectionism here. This does not mean um, some other twisted version of that theology. But it does mean that Christians do not live a lifestyle of sin. We will constantly struggle with sin until we see Jesus face to face but we do not live a lifestyle of owning and embracing uh, and pursuing sin. Hear me, kill the sin in your life. Kill the sin in your life. No matter how difficult that is, it is a beautiful thing to experience. Step out of the darkness and walk in the light. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the light? I wanna give you three points of application this morning. And these are things for you to consider in your own life. First of all, we are able to walk in the light because he walked in the light. That's the gospel. That's a summation of the gospel. We can walk in the light. How? Because Jesus was crucified, right? Defeating death. And then he resurrected, giving us life eternal. We experience the kingdom of God, both uh, forever and ever in that day to come, but also right now. We can experience victory and hope over sin. The gospel allows us to walk in the light, to turn away from those alluring things of this world because Jesus himself has done that. That's the gospel. Number two, we are able to walk in the light when we abide in the light. Friends, the way we kill sin, the way we experience sanctification, the way we experience the good life is when we make our primary task of life is to abide with him. And abiding with Jesus, cultivating that that life of a Christian is not simply reading your Bible. It's not simply praying. Those are the backbones of our faith, but it is an all-encompassing walking in the Spirit. So just consider that. What does it mean to have a cultivated life? To have a cultivated life. So I've got these plants out in my backyard. I have two really good examples for this sermon. Uh, We planted um, some tomato plants where the sun comes and we're water, where it rains really well. And then we planted uh, a watermelon plant in the only other place that we could find, which was in a flower bed that is mostly in the shade and that is covered by a dogwood tree that doesn't get a lot of rain. And guess what? That watermelon plant is tiny, shriveling, and dying, and that tomato plant is, boom, shooting up to the sky. So when we root our life in the gospel— when we kill sin, when we abide in the fellowship of other Christians, when we, root our lo- when we root our lives in the scriptures, when we seek to pray, when we walk in the spirit, we are cultivating that life, that Christian life. 
So we, we are able to walk in the light because he has walked in the light. We are able to walk in the light when we cultivate a life with Jesus. And finally, as we do these two things, we are able to walk in the light because light casts out darkness. The gospel, the gospel being true and us believing in the gospel and creating a cultivated life allows us to live a life of repentance and faith, turning away from sin, turning away from darkness and embracing the light. I'm not saying that as if it's an easy thing. It's as simple as like, hey, just walk away from darkness and into the light. It is a moment by moment choice to live in the light. But it's a beautiful life of repentance and sanctification that that we get to experience in Jesus. And here's the best thing. The best thing about this whole message and then this invitation to live your life in the light As you and I seek to walk in the light, as we abide in Jesus, as we kill the sin in our life, as we shine this light out to others, God is doing something for us that is so great, so amazing, it's hard for us to even imagine. And this is what I would say as the church, not just your church, the church as a whole, we sell ourselves short when we get so focused on the here and now that we fail to set our eyes on the the place and the days that are coming. I love what John writes here in the book of Revelation about our coming reality. Chapter 21, verse 23, he says, The city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will bring, it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, when life kicks you in the mouth, when the voice of the darkness is loud and walking in the light is hard, remember, there is a day coming when suffering is no more, when death is done, and when our new home doesn't need a lamp or a light switch or even a sun in the sky because the Lamb of God the king of the universe will illuminate our world forever. Friends, you want hope? Don't think about today. Don't think about tomorrow. Think about the day that is coming where when we look up into the sky, day or night, the lamb of God illuminates our world. The pain and the suffering you experience, it's but a moment. I know it's not a moment. I know it lasts years and years. But when we step back, In all of eternity, our suffering and our shame and our pain and our limitations and our broken body, all of those are but a moment. And eternity reflected back at us is a light shining bright for all of us to see, all of us to experience. There is a day coming that all will be made right. And the light is coming. The light is here. Jesus is with you. Walk in the light. And when Jesus ascended up into heaven, before he did that, before this great light shined into the sky, he gave us a reminder of what it means to experience the light and to be light. And this is how Jesus works, right? He gives us these metaphors and these pictures. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. And he literally, on the the night that he was betrayed, one of his last gifts to his disciples, he he takes a loaf of bread, this physical bread that they, they were actually eating a meal, And he says, I I am like this bread, this physical bread, right? The bread of life. And as often as you gather together 
You should, should eat this meal. What, what is he saying? He's like, my body is, is broken for you. In just hours, and just days, they would see their crucified Lord. They would see and experience what it meant. His body broken. As often as you gather together, break this, this physical bread and remember me. In the same way, take this, this cup, this cup of the new covenant or the new promise, the New Testament. Drink this. This, is my, this, is, this represents my blood and remember my sacrifice. This is a, a tangible, physical picture of what Jesus has done for you. And he invites us as the church, come and eat and remember. Remember Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And, and this is a family meal. This is for those who have experienced life, who are walking in the light. If you've never placed your life in Jesus, or if you have questions about your faith, this meal is not for you. Uh, grab a believer, grab a pastor, talk with them, understand what it means to walk with Jesus, and come and take this next week with us. But for those who do follow Jesus, if you're family, this is something to come, to eat, and to experience. Let's do that now. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your goodness in our life that when we were in eternal darkness, you flipped that switch of your life, death, and resurrection and light flooded in. Jesus, in our temporal, limited state, help us to understand what it means to be light, to follow the light, and to step out of the darkness. May you bring the hope of the gospel into our lives, Jesus. May you change us. May this be a church that reflects the light of the life into this community. For those who are experiencing the temptation and the struggle of sin, release us and give us hope for for the future, Jesus. May communion remind us of the goodness that you have given to us in your body and in your blood. It's in your name I pray. Amen.